0: been here this summer. We've been in the book of First Peter. We've been going through a series where we've kind of just been working our way through it uh, piece by piece. And this, it's been a really good series full of a lot of, of um, a lot of the what and how of faith, a lot of, of instructions about how we conduct ourselves, about ideas about organizing church, um, and, and I don't know if you're anything like me, but I, I noticed this tendency in my heart a, little bit, a couple of teachings in to start to kind of push back and feel like, okay, we have been telling me what to do for like weeks now and, and I need a little more why. And, and so that's what I really wanna spend time on this week because I, I believe that the commands of God in scripture are good and that, they're for, that they, they are good for us and that they're leading us somewhere. And so I wanted to take a little bit of the what and how And balance it out today with more of the why of our faith. Um, So to that end, we're going to be studying out of uh, John, the first chapter. And um, just to give you a little bit of context for John, he is a guy who was really good friends with Jesus. He was one of of, of just his close group of friends that he spent three years with him doing life and watching Jesus do ministry and learning how to do ministry from him. Um, And then he sat down and he wrote this book. And, And the book of John is really special to me. I really enjoy reading it because John does a really good job, not just capturing the what and how of the life of Jesus, but capturing a lot of the why, of, the, of, the, of, the, of what drove him to do the actions um, that he does throughout the book. Uh, so I'm going to read the first 18 verses, and then we'll just kind of jump right in to the teaching. Oh, and if you are using one of our blue Bibles, that is on page 517. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're welcome to get up at any point and get one off of the tables in the corners of the room. Okay, so this is John chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is a different John uh, than the one who's writing this book. Uh, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did, And from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, but he was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, this is the word of the Lord from John chapter one. So I'm just going to pray over this and then we'll get started in with, this, uh, with the teaching. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone in this room. Um, thank you just for bringing them here. Um, I don't know what Saturday was like, or the last week was like, or the last year of their life has been like, but thank you that this morning uh, that we're all here together. I pray that you would just move today, that you would show up um, and do what only you can do. God, I pray that your word would show something new to each of us about who you are, show something new to me about who you are and to everyone in this room. God, we love you. We want to know more about you. Amen. And so I love that from the beginning of this book, <clears throat> excuse me, John sets up this really cool literary picture here. He mirrors the, the language used at the very beginning of the Bible, way back in the book of Genesis chapter one, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here in John 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. And so he sets up this beautiful symmetry. He's saying, hey, the story that God has been telling is not over, but a new chapter's beginning. And this new chapter begins with Jesus. So if you grew up in church like I did, um, it can be really easy to see scripture as as I saw for for so many years as this book of kind of loosely connected stories. Uh, A lot of stories that have a good like moral to them and something that we can learn or as even sometimes to look at it as a book of like of rules that there are lots of rules here and we read the rules and we figure out which ones apply today and which ones don't and we get these guidelines for how to live a good life. Uh, but thanks to some really just amazing teachers and friends, I, I've, I've had my eyes open to what a beautiful story this whole book tells as a whole. From beginning to end, it's, it's a unified narrative. It's not just these disconnected stories or a rule book, but it's like a big, we use like, like, like a capital S story, like it's a big tale. Um, I don't know why I said tale. That's like a weird, yeah. whatever. Anyway... Um, and so, is this continuing story of a God who cares, who created, and cares deeply for creation, and who meets people in various ways—a God who is on the side of the people that He meets, and who's calling them forward. In every instance where God interacts with someone, He calls them forward into greater and greater grace and freedom. Like that's the pattern of God throughout Scripture, from the very beginning. So in the beginning, we see a God who creates this garden. This is a place of just like beauty and peace between man and between man and God. It literally says that they went on walks in the garden with God. But before too long, um, mankind makes some really selfish decisions and, they, and, and results in like a, oh, sorry. <clears throat> mankind, I, gosh, I lost my train of thought. I'm gonna drink some water and then I'm gonna get back to it. Okay, Mankind makes some really selfish decisions that results in like a rejection of the peace of this garden and an ejection from the garden ultimately. And so from the beginning, we see this tendency of the human heart to choose itself over others, to choose itself over a relationship with God and to make these selfish decisions. But despite this, God continues to meet people. He keeps touching down he keeps meeting people and, and he and he meets people and he invites them into life he He promises to be their God and he gives them uh, some guidelines to living and 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 invites them deeper and they inevitably break these covenants, but he's still faithful and he keeps meeting them and When I look at this like big picture pattern of man, I see a smaller version of it in my own life. I see this pattern and this tendency to uh, to take to, to know that God is speaking, to look back and to see places where I knew God was calling me forward and to, say, and to like dig my heels in and to focus on the little things that I can control. I, I mean, honestly, even in the season that I'm in right now, I see this tendency where I've kind of set up this idol of certainty and comfort where I want to be comfortable and have financial stability and I wanna have predictable routines and know what life is gonna bring me. And I keep sensing that God is asking me to loosen my grip on those things a little bit. And some days... I do an okay to decent job, but most days I don't. Most days I end up digging my heels in and saying, no, God, I've got this. I'm gonna focus on the things that are right here in front of me so I can control them. it reminds me of this scene in my favorite movie, and I mean that, my absolute favorite movie of all time, Jurassic Park. Uh, Who's seen Jurassic Park? They're disappointing too many of you who haven't. That's your homework assignment for today is to go home and watch Jurassic Park if you haven't because it's the best movie uh, that's ever been made. I hope I didn't overhype it. But anyway, there's this scene in Jurassic Park where these two, these two uh, scientists, they, they come to this park that's full of dinosaurs and they, don't, they haven't seen the dinosaurs yet. They don't know what they're getting into. And they, they're in this Jeep and they're driving through a field and one of them is a, is, is a botanist and she's holding this leaf in her hand and she's so amazed by the fact that this leaf has been extinct for millions and millions of years and she's talking about it, and she's so fascinated by it and everyone else in the, in the Jeep goes silent because they look up and there's a freaking dinosaur like towering over them and she's just looking at this leaf and she's like, look, can you, have, you seen, can you, have you seen this leaf? And finally one of the other scientists reaches over and points her to the, to, the, uh, to the dinosaur looming over them. And I feel like God's saying, hey, you're focused on this leaf in your hand because you can control the leaf, but there's a dinosaur right there. And I'll, I'll, I want you to look at that. And that's kind of where I feel like I am right now. And so I see this tendency in my heart. It's like, no, God's calling me to something better, but to keep one in control. And so we see this pattern And after generations of this, of this pattern of covenant and promise from God, of disobedience from man, of their return to him and failure over and over and over again, something finally changes as Jesus comes into the world. It says in John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I said back at the beginning that we were gonna talk about the why of our faith. And this is the why of our faith, Jesus coming into the earth. That's where everything starts to change. And I love that we see hear that Jesus was there all along. The New Testament isn't some new thing where Jesus shows up, but he's been there throughout the Old Testament. Um, back in, in verse one, he says, you know, in the beginning was the word of God. And when we go back to the very beginning of scripture, we see God. The first thing God does is speak. We see God said, let there be light. And God called the light day. And so from the very beginning, the word of God is there. And the word of God here in the beginning of John like comes into the world in human form. I was reading this commentary by this guy named David Stern this week. He says that we can see this um, from the beginning in Genesis and that God expressing himself, commanding, calling and creating is one of the primary themes of the Bible. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of this theme that has been hinted at and seen in pieces throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes in to show us the fullness of it. Jesus is the perfect expression of God from himself. If you wanna to get to know somebody, like how do you do that? You, you sit down with them, you talk to them, you hear what they, what they have to say about themselves, you see their lives, you, you watch who they are. And so, and so often I think we, we have this idea of God that he's kind of this unknowable, nebulous Sorry, that was a big word. And I, that no, was too big a word. Anyway, this, un, this uh, <laughs> oh, I did it again. <laughs> we have this idea of God, that he's this big far off thing that's hard to understand. But in reality, what God says about himself is made manifest in Jesus. You watch Jesus and how he lived his life. You get a really good picture of who God is. And like John, the other John in verse six, who came to bear witness of the light, for those of us who have seen Jesus, who have seen the light, our duty is to be witnesses for the light. But I think sometimes the, sun, the like week-to-week practice of faith can get in the way of, of the why, of the beauty of, of the just like incredible truth of what our faith is. And so John is reminding us here, he's saying that these questions that nag at the heart of human beings, and something that I think is something that our, our generation experiences at a level that no other generation has, these existential questions of why even do we exist? Like, what's the purpose of life? How do we live in a way that matters? How do we create a society that is just and affirms the dignity of everyone? How do we find freedom from fears and anxieties that so often seem to control and define our lives? The writer of Hebrews would say, consider Jesus. John says, hey, there's something you're sensing. There's something that you see that life has to be more than just random. We see this throughout history, throughout humanity, that there's gotta be something more. And we see the artists and the philosophers and the scientists all trying to understand the meaning of all that, how it all fits together. And John's saying, hey, there's something, that that something that's out there, that something that holds it all together, that something that all of this came from, isn't just a something, it's a someone, and it's not just a vague someone, but it's a real flesh and blood human being who came to the earth for a reason, with a purpose? Isaiah 55, verse 10 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, remember Jesus is the word of God, that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so what did Jesus set out to accomplish when he came into the word? According to verse 12, all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this idea of believing in a name, I think it, for anyone who grew up around church or has heard like church sermons and things like that, you know, believing in the name of someone is, is language that you might have heard, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning. Um, to us nowadays. We don't talk that way. We don't say, I believed in the name of whoever. Um, But in, in in the culture in which this was written, it had this really beautiful context because name in the ancient Middle East represented so much more than just the word that you responded to, but your name represented the fullness of who you are it represented everything there was to know about you. The, the, the Hebrew people throughout the Old Testament and, and today have this beautiful tradition with the name of God where they, they won't speak it out loud because they so revere what it contains about God. They don't even write it down. They use like an abbreviation when it's written. So this is the context of names. So when it says that those who believed in his name, it means those who believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that the fullness of what Jesus said, that he is the way to the Father, that he is the truth and the life, that the things he told us about how to live and what he was inviting us into is true. To those, he gave the right to become children of God. I love later on in the the gospel of John um, in chapter 10, Verse three, you don't have to turn there, um, but Jesus is talking to a group of people. He's explaining to them who he is. He says, hey, I'm the good shepherd. And this idea of of Jesus as the shepherd and, and we as sheep. And he says, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. And I love this verse. Um, and I'm going to get really geeky here for a second, so I need you to bear with me. I apologize in advance. But I love language. I love the uh, I, I love the connotation that words can carry. I love how certain cultures and certain languages really understand an idea and have these like loaded words that explain an idea. And there's this word here in the original language that this book that this uh, this book was written in, and it's this word onoma. It's this Greek word, and it means so much more than just name. You see. Anima is, it carries this ancient connotation of name. It's when everything else gets stripped away. It's when all of the hopes and dreams that you put identity in, when all the fears and anxieties that, define, that, that so often can define us, when all those things get stripped away, at the core of who you are, there's a name. And that name is Anima. And what it says is that when Jesus calls a sheep, he looks at them, he knows you, and he calls you by your Anima. And your anima is, is a name, but it's also an invitation. And I think, that, I think that we can kind of start to grasp a little bit of this. Let me, let, me make it, let me bring it into our context a little bit. So whenever someone, I think we can all think of times maybe where someone has forgotten your name that you felt like ought to have remembered it and how that kind of hurts. Or when someone has remembered your name that you didn't expect to and how, how known and cared about you felt. I think about this time a couple of years ago. I got to sit down. Um, and film an interview with a musician that I grew up listening to, because obviously this is Nashville. And um, I, I, we barely interacted. I introduced myself at the beginning. I ran the camera. Someone else was running the interview. We finished it, and we, we packed up and left, and, and that was that. And then months later, I'm walking, I'm in the, I'm walking through this public place, and I, and I see this musician that I had seen, and he sees me in the crowd and recognizes me, and like, Calls my calls out my name and greets me and comes and like asks questions and and it's this really cool moment where this guy who meant so much to me growing up like I got to see that it was kind of reciprocated that he remembered who I was that he remembered enough to to call me by my name to ask me um, to ask me questions about myself and and so you know what this what John ten is saying is that God. This, this thing that is moving all of creation towards something that is holding all of it together, it's not, impersonal, it's not an impersonal force. It's a person who knows your name, who knows your anima, who knows who you are in a way that even you don't understand who you are and who meets you where you are now and invites you forward into like a deeper and deeper embracing, embrace. Sing whatever, that's not a word. Into embracing your own mind, who you are and who you were made to be. It's the name that Jesus calls us by. And so in verse 16, John says that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And I want to take a minute here towards the end to kind of address some of the tension that I think we can feel between law and being told and hearing things that we ought to and ought not do and the grace that we know and we see in Jesus. And what he says here is that, you know, the law was given through Moses, but he doesn't say that Jesus like got rid of the law. Because what the law was, what covenant was in the Old Testament was God coming to a person, to a people at a specific time and saying, hey, I'm meeting you right here where you are and I know what the next step for you is into grace and freedom. And he invites them in. And often this took the shape of rules and regulations. And I think sometimes there's this tension that I feel when I look back at the Old Testament and I read things and I think, man, that sounds so old fashioned or even like I might even use the word barbaric sometimes. But if you take it into context, If you read these sections and and look at the historical context of the time, every time God gave regulations and commands to his people, it was a paradigm shifting step forward into grace and freedom. And it it might not look like that to us now, but that's because we are on the receiving end of thousands of years of God moving humanity forward in grace and grace and freedom. And and this beautiful thing that just, that happened when Jesus came into the world. And we continue to see that the life and ministry of Jesus. He talks about bringing the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus went, he brought the kingdom of heaven, this this kind of subversive upside down kingdom where Jesus would come into towns and villages and he would release people from spiritual and physical um, oppression and hurt. He would come to people that were pushed out and pushed to the margins by their society, people who had no rights or who had no respect and he would affirm their dignity. He He would look at them and he would, he would empower them and love them and invite them towards more and to, into deeper and deeper grace and freedom. And this is the pattern of the life of Jesus culminating at the cross, this exchange where he swapped his righteousness, his perfect, um, his, his perfect life, this perfect interpretation of, of grace and freedom that's found in God for our brokenness, our sinfulness. And, and then throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see these followers of Jesus trying to figure out what it looks like to live this out in their uh, society. And we see that it's kind of messy a lot of times. We see this throughout the New Testament, these disagreements and and people living in ways that, that that aren't of the kingdom of God, but they're all getting together and working it out and trying to understand and moving it forward. And this doesn't end at the end of this book, but it continues throughout our day, it continues throughout history. And the influence of the church throughout history has been profound. And sometimes it's been profound for not the best of reasons, but more often, the mark that the church has left on our culture is incredible. Our Western culture is built so much on this idea of individual rights and freedom, on the dignity that every person deserves. And that's not an idea that existed in society. Forever societies were organized by the strong dominate the weak. And the, the kingdom of Jesus began to infiltrate government and culture and began to shape it to, to, to affirm the dignity of human beings. And we've, 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 this has become so much a part of how we live life that we don't even necessarily realize where it came from. And so we end up living in this society now uh, that, that wants to take the good that the kingdom of heaven has brought to the earth but move on without the king, well, it's the kingdom without the king, as this, uh, this pastor in Australia would say. And, and it's this, this, this thing where we wanna take all of these, these beautiful things that, that the church has given to the world, but we wanna move on without uh, the authority of God. We wanna move on without the commitment and the sacrifice of our will that is required to follow Jesus. And I think it can be really tempting for us to land on one side or the other, to push hard for law and rules or to push hard for grace. But at the end of the day, we see in the pattern of scripture is that law moves us forward, it pushes us forward, but grace and truth is at the end of the law, that there's a spirit that the law is given in is freedom and grace ever increasing for every human being. And so our calling as followers of Jesus is to carry this hope and this truth about who God is, about this big God, that all of humanity has been trying to understand in one way or another, that this big God became a human being who literally walked on the earth, who met people and taught people, and that we carry this hope and this truth and this this opportunity for grace upon grace, freedom upon freedom into our lives, into our world, into this neighborhood and our workplaces, and that we, we, we seek to live our lives in this tension between law and grace and find the life that God calls us to somewhere in the middle. And so every week uh, we do this, we, t- we take communion and communion is this really beautiful picture and this beautiful reminder that of, of exactly what we've been talking about this morning of this word that has been used in church history is incarnation, the idea that God became a human being. And so we take the bread that represents the body of, of Christ that God took on a physical human form and we take the cup, which reminds us that Christ died for everyone, that his blood was poured out on a cross to exchange his perfect understanding of the grace and freedom of God for our brokenness, for the oppression that we live in, and that he keeps calling us towards more and more. And that for everyone in this room, we're all in different places, but what I want you to hear today is that what God has for you is more grace and more freedom. And what that looks like for every person in this room is different, but God is calling you into deeper and deeper truth and identity for who you are. He's calling you by your anima into grace and into freedom that you haven't yet experienced. And the really beautiful part is that once you've gotten to where God's calling you into right now, there's more, like you get to keep going and keep journeying in a deeper and deeper grace and freedom. And so we're gonna celebrate that by taking communion. Let me go ahead and get everybody to stand. I'll give some directions on that and then we'll get back into worship.